Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of a brand new show here on Voice of Ashon called Focus On. Let me start by asking a question. Have you ever wondered what great ideas might be hiding just next door in another culture or country? If so, then you are going to love this show. Today, I will be talking with, oh, and you know what? I can't quite pronounce the name properly, so how about you say it for me? Octavia Johnstotter. Okay, that was easier than I was anticipating. (laughs) Brilliant. So Octavia is one of eight guest writers from Iceland who will be joining me on Focus On. Hello, Octavia. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Focus On is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. on Sundays and 5 p.m. on Fridays during your coming home commute. Here in the Seattle area on 101.9 FM, KVSH, although you can also stream it online at voiceofvashon.org or head over to my website, marchtwisdale.com, where you could even sign up for podcast if you'd like. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And now we're going to dive into the show. Octavia, if you can give our listeners a sense of who you are, ground them a little bit in your background, that would be great. Well, I'm Icelandic. Uh, however, I've lived most of my life outside of Iceland. I've lived in the United States, uh, actually in Seattle in 95 and 96. I lived most of my life in Denmark. And then I've uh, lived in Germany and, and Washington, D.C., so I came back to Iceland last year to run for the parliamentary um, elections. So most of my time I've spent around the world working with and enhancing um, activists and journalists' ability to stay safe and continue to do the work that they do. So I'm a big believer in privacy. I'm a big believer in, in free expression. And um, and I've pretty much dedicated a big chunk of my life in the last decade ensuring that people can do exactly that no matter where they are in the world. I've, I think, worked in more than 20 countries. Um, but now it's time to come home and continue the activism in a in a very new place for me, which is um, which is this part time work I have at Parliament as a deputy member of Parliament. So. I was really impressed. Uh, you sent me your bio as a link. Um, so folks can check this out if they want. This is Freedom of the Press Foundation. So let's start a little bit with this because um, freedom of the press around the world is really important. And as you said, you've traveled a bunch and I imagine have encountered varying degrees of positive press relationships in different countries. What are your thoughts right now in 2017 about this issue? I think the press, the fourth estate in itself is under threat. It it no longer serves the purpose that populations need, that citizens need for it to serve. Uh, It's under threat, not just physically or online. Its livelihood has become more and more difficult and we haven't been able to solve the issue or to take on what does free press look like uh, in the 21st century on the Internet where we're used to not paying for things. What does that look like? Will people actually want to pay for news now? Um, does the quality of the news matter? Uh, is it just clickbait? And so I think the struggle that many big media outlets uh, have had in the last five to ten years is, is, is very real. And those that have managed to be brave 
have managed to find uh, sometimes quirky but good ways in which to uh, to sustain themselves. Other than that, I mean, working with media outlets from Washington D.C., New York to East Africa, Southeast Asia, it it seems to to be the same person. That's why I've really enjoyed and loved my 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 work so far. Um, which is the DNA of the journalist is the same wherever I go. Mm-hmm. Um, they're diggers. They want to find the truth. They want to get to the bottom of things. It's it's a magical um, profession who, that really attracts a certain type of individual, which I find deeply fascinating. I mean, for me personally, I do get more than annoyed when 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 talk comes up about fake news. Mm-hmm. For me, it's kind of like saying consensual sex. Uh, there is no such thing as consensual sex. There is sex, and then there is other things, um, and we call those by their real names, such as rape or sexual assault, mm-hmm. sexual harassment. Um, there is no such thing as consensual sex. Sex in itself is consensual. And that's, uh, I guess, the same reasoning that makes uh, fake news a disservice to me. It's not really helping us assess what is going on because there is something called news and news have certain values. News constitutes uh, itself by um, by a couple of factors, right? Mm-hmm. And when it's not news, it's something else. It is outright lying. It right. is manipulation. Um, so when we when we do this, when we start framing things like fake news or, or, or going to, you know, we, we're doing ourselves a disservice by not calling things by their real names. I have had the same reaction to this concept of fake news um, in that it feel, it reminds me of the type of um, doublespeak and the ways in which in that fictional world of 1984, language was being used in very sneaky ways to really control and manipulate the thinking of the people. The same thing with alternative facts. That's that is that is mm. literally not a thing. Right. You you have you have facts. <laughs> right. And 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 then if facts are not true, they're not facts anymore. Right. They're assumptions that need to be proven, or um, they're debunked facts, or you mm-hmm. know the whole notion that you get it's 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 very. Um, they're they're being called alternative facts. Alternative facts is also yet another spin of 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 looking at you know inconvenient truths. That's like an oxymoron. Alternative facts. That's weird. <laughs> okay. So um, when it comes to the media, they do have their work cut out for them these mm-hmm. days. Um, it is not easy being a freelance journalist or a media outlet. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think. If you, I mean, just briefly, if you look to the situation in the United States today, there's a lot you can learn from countries like Ukraine and, and Russia, from Belarus, um, from Georgia, from, from plenty of other countries that have had to deal with uh, propaganda environments, mm-hmm. so to speak, um, that have done this for decades, that have a much stronger um, kind of protocol, if you like, of of how to get around or how to be able to vet the information, because you 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 re- you literally have to do that now. You can't necessarily trust um, what media and or 
people in power are saying anymore. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I think you always needed to have a bit of a shadow of a doubt, um, like forever, but it's definitely gotten worse in the current day. It, it, it is interesting. I, anything I see ever until I have vetted it and found at least three to five other sources that seem to corroborate and are of high value, I'm not going to forward the information, much less believe it. Mm. But you're right. A lot of people get emotionally triggered and they just forward something on because it, it supports their running current worldview or their, their fears get triggered. And the next thing you know, they're just like, you know, the, the amount of, um, on Facebook and other places of anxiety and emotional turmoil that you can feel coming out of some people's posts is really, um, I think it's sobering. It is. And we also have to remember that just because we don't understand how certain things work doesn't mean that it doesn't work like that. We are not the be all and end all of fact checking or understanding. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to social media, when it comes to Facebook, we are ultimately stuck in what's called a filter bubble where we will only see, uh, you know, um, we're having a positive experience and there are algorithms in place that kind of pick and choose what you get to see in your feed or not, mm-hmm. uh, which means that you're not going to necessarily see posts from family members or friends that disagree with you. Uh, you're going to be shown one or two colors depending on what your profile is, what you've searched for, and a bunch of other information that is fed into this algorithm. And what that's doing is it's making us very intolerant because we're not used to all of a sudden we're not used to having to have to argue uh, for our, um, you know, points of view anymore. We're not applying our critical thinking skills, uh, the ones that, you know, our parental figures or uh, or, uh, you know, the education that we've received um, has has provided us and, and given us right that we've had right. we've had access to that we're not using those skills anymore and I think it's it's not a question of if you don't use it you lose it um, but I think it is a question of if you don't use it it's going to uh, become rusty like a bike you know right and you don't get the benefits along mm-hmm. the way so you stop perhaps even realizing that it would be important to start using it again. Cause it, that, that was, you mentioned, what was the bubble you were talking about? The filter bubble. The that filter bubble. Media. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's also the echo chamber has been talked about a lot where yeah. people are only hearing from people they already agree with about almost everything. And then they end up picking fights over little teeny tiny details with a person who they actually pretty much agree with. Meanwhile, Absolutely. there's no engagement with someone of a truly unique alternative viewpoint that you might be able to learn something from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, absolutely. And we need that. We need to be able to, for us to continue as societies and as civilization, I think we need to be able to have conversations with people that we fundamentally disagree with. Right, right. I think that's the way forward for sure. And it's definitely the way forward if we want to have you know, beautiful, innovative practices or, or a beautiful innovation when it comes to how we govern our society right. um, or, or, you know, in, in, in what manner we interact with each other, et cetera, et cetera. That innovation does not come out of a place of complacency where you're basically just nodding 
to the same crowd of individuals that you know that you agree with, right? Right, patting yourself on the back at the same time. So exactly. we were preaching gonna, to the converted. Yes, exactly, preaching to the converted. So we were going to talk about um, engagement versus disempowerment, and um, and we're going to come to that in a unique way because um, the reason I talk about cultures and countries is because even within specific countries, you can have different areas of cultural behavior. I have a friend who's from Louisiana, and she Mm -hmm. always complains now that she lives up here in the Pacific Northwest um, in Washington near Seattle. She complains that this culture in this part of America is um, very much averse to any type of tension or argument. So if you're at a cafe and you mention something that other people might think they disagree with, they'll just drop the topic. Whereas she remembers these, has these fond memories of the whole family getting together, you know, 18 people for dinner every Sunday at her grandmother's. And there'd be these rousing arguments over the dinner table. People are, you know, raising their hands in the air and raising their voices and this, you know, like this back and forth debate about all sorts of stuff. And then at the end of dinner, Everyone has their cup of coffee and they have their dessert and they give each other a hug and they go home still loving everyone, but they actually talked honestly about deep, important things, even if they disagreed. With respect as well, with respect for other opinions, with with respect for how you communicate your point of view to a person that has a different point of view. Right. Respect the person even if you challenge the idea. Always. Right. I think that's very important. So I'm curious, um, Iceland, I was, I was having, as I mentioned to you earlier, I was having a conversation with someone on Facebook a couple days ago and I knew I'd be interviewing you today. So I went online and was checking out, um, your voting, um, habits in Iceland. And you said that 79.1% of people voting in the last elections was actually lower than normal. Let's touch a little bit on this engagement versus disempowerment piece. And um, how the Pirate Party, which I'll need you to define for my audience, is um, perhaps hoping to encourage more um, of that engagement. How about we start with a quick description for my listeners about the Pirate Party? Absolutely. So the Pirate Party here in Iceland was formed uh, in late 2012. Um, It was a new party, and I think... Uh, not unique to Iceland, um, political parties is not an easy thing to do. Um, it's quite daunting and it's often done in an environment where you have political parties that are maybe a hundred years old, right? Right. Um, so it was a big endeavor to start that party, but the history of the pirate party is actually, um, 10 years old now. Mm-hmm. The first pirate party was founded in, um, in Sweden. And it came at the back of uh, an illegal file sharing, uh, a court case with an illegal file sharing site called the Pirate Bay. Now, basically what that was is it was a place where you could allegedly, you could go uh, and illegally download music, for instance, or movies. Now that became a big case and uh, the people that would download, uh, let's say a song, would be called pirates, right? Because they're technically... Stealing, right? So the Pirate Party came out of that notion because the only way that our culture and societies and civilization has evolved so far 
has been through copying, has been through replicating. We replicate each other's mannerisms every day. We replicate um, products and things. We replicate in each other's culture. And it's in mm -hmm. that cultural exchange that we take the next steps forward, that we ground ourselves in the present as well. Right. So it was kind of a way to say, no, you know, we're going to own this and we're going to say we need to find bigger and better systems around copyright mm -hmm. that is not rendering money to the businesses. It's rendering money to the artists and it's allowing human beings to be human beings on the Internet mm -hmm. uh, without being penalized, without actually committing crimes on a daily basis. Basically, how the whole thing started in two thousand, more than 10 years ago, as I said, in Sweden, um, so a reform of the copyright laws and patent laws, um, intellectual property law, right? Uh, and then from this notion that we need free expression, freedom of information, uh, we need the internet to remain open and neutral, right. uh, and we need transparency in governance, that governance structures are set up for the people, by the people. Mm -hmm. And right. so there is never anything in that structure that should be hidden from the people. Right. Uh, it's, right. It's, it's our emotion. government. It's ours. It that sense of ownership is so lost on so many people. It, but it's, it's ours. It's what we intentionally choose to do together as united people. Exactly. And so when it comes to privacy, which is a huge deal for there are pirate parties now in, in multiple countries uh, that have been successful uh, to varying degrees. And and uh, and and currently the Icelandic pirate party, as I said, from 2012 is the most successful one on a national scale. Right. Uh, with 10 members. Uh, we have 10 members of parliament currently in a 63 person uh, parliament. Right. Um, Let, let's stop for one second. I just want to make sure my listeners caught that. So we just went through a really intense um, year and a half of politics in America. And one of the big yeah. pieces was the question of whether or not America could ever, ever possibly have a third party, right? Mm -hmm. And um, there's lots of opinions out there about that. We have the Libertarian Party as an example, which has been around for decades and still has virtually no seats anywhere, definitely not in the national level. Meanwhile, in Iceland, a party that pulled itself together in 2012 now has one out of six seats Almost, yeah. in the national parliament. So in four, five years, you end up with Wow, <laughs> you know, um, compared to um, ours. So the probably the question that's like jumping out of the mouths of a bunch of my listeners right now is what can we learn from what's going on in Iceland that could empower us as Americans to mm -hmm. break out of this two-party um, prison that we've sort of gotten ourselves stuck in? Well, I think, first of all, you you have to kind of walk away from the national conversation. Mm -hmm. National conversation doesn't matter when it comes to building a movement. If anyone knows about building, successfully building social movements that give you liberties, that give you uh, equality, that give you civil rights, I believe that was the United States back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. You had some huge issues and you know how to do this. I was... 
um, surprised and saddened by uh, the recent choice of, of, of president in your country. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I see it as an opportunity as well for you to come back as a people and unite around the civil rights that you know you deserve as a country, mm-hmm. that you deserve in your communities, in your states, in your federal government. So it is an opportunity for you to get back to those roots and take back the democratic processes that you should have as a free country. So I think the advice for Americans that are right now feeling disempowered or a feeling as if it doesn't matter, right? We, I think, why do we vote? Why do we have a representative democracy? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pirate Party is uh, all about direct instead of representative democracy, right? Um, to give us more access Uh, And we can do that in different ways. But I think we have representative democracies because we want someone to represent us when it comes to very important conversation that govern the way that we interact with each other. Mm -hmm. Now, those representatives are uh, chosen by you if you are eligible to vote. Um, So what I'm saying is the access, you have to work at access to the system. I know it's flawed. I know it needs to be repaired, but the way in which you can have influence is making sure that every individual that meets the requirements of voting is in fact registered to vote. This is a huge tool of disempowerment. It's a huge tool of control to access to democratic processes. And I know that it's, it's different in different states but ensuring that it is as easy as possible for your citizens to vote is the first step. Get involved in your local council. Those decisions made there are going to be made by people regardless. So why not take a moment to show up at a city council meeting, to show up in your local community, to have your say and to have influence? You don't have to be the only one, but um, you won't be if you keep going. <laughs> I'm going to have to take a quick uh, station identification break here, but I want to touch on what you mentioned about um, people who are eligible to vote. Uh, it's really interesting to consider that in some countries, and I haven't memorized which ones, I think Sweden is one of them, um, people who are currently serving time in prison for crimes they've committed are um, completely able to vote while they're in prison here in people iceland. in iceland as well okay so I, I did a i did a voter meeting out in the prison what they do though is they vote um two weeks before the elections because they can't show up right <laughs> they can't right. show up and vote right because they're in prison yeah so they uh they vote letter vote two weeks before but imagine what that means when we talk about engagement is that you know so in in a in a culture where even the people who are temporarily set aside into prison, we know that when they come back out, what we want is them to return to society and to have been able to recover from the mistakes they made and create a life and become a contributing member of society. How does a person feel like they are wanted by their society or interested in reengaging, given that in America, once you've been sent to prison, um, you can't ever vote for the rest of your life if it's a felony? So it's like instantly you are now voiceless till death. You have no voice. And I always think to myself, if they still had a voice and they were still valued in that way, not as engagement isn't the word, but they'd be much more interested in investing back, you know? So 
go ahead. Human rights. Yeah, it's basic human rights. Why would you, you know, if, if, if you're going to have a penal system, if you're going to have a system where we say when you break the law and do certain things, you take out, uh, you go to a prison and you take out your sentence there. If you degrade and dehumanize that human being while there, what you're going to get back is someone that feels subhuman. Mm-hmm. And if you feel subhuman, you're going to start acting subhuman. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Taking away something as important as your voting right because you are in prison, to me, makes no sense. It, it's a lack of loyalty Great. on behalf of society towards that individual. So how can we expect loyalty back from them? Exactly. Yeah. So um, if you're just joining us, everyone, this is March Twisdale, producer and host of Focus On. And today I'm having a great time talking with Octavia uh, Johnstetter. Mm-hmm. I said it. Yay. Before we return to the interview, I'd like to give a shout out to those who keep Voice of Vashon on the air. Support for this program comes from Vashon Heating and Cooling, a full-service heating, cooling, and energy management company. They will diagnose your home or office HVAC problem and offer on-site solutions for energy savings. You can call them at 206-463-1777. KVSH program support also comes from Puget Sound Cooperative Credit Union, PSCCU. We're serving the financial needs of our neighbors in a not-for-profit manner, improving housing stock, lowering energy usage, and putting a lot of contractors to work is how PSCCU practices community and cooperation Vashon style. Okie doke. So we're going to get back to this interview. Um, Octavia is from born in Iceland, traveled around the world doing a bunch of amazing stuff, and she's back in Iceland now serving as a member of the Pirate Party. So we have been discussing everything from the origins of the Pirate Party, which I strongly encourage everyone out there to Google it later and start exploring a bit. It's pretty cool. To um, engagement versus disempowerment and ways in which we can, I don't know, what would you say? Like we're sort of discussing how people can choose to engage even at a point where things have been so corrupted that it might feel just a little bit hopeless, but ultimately what choice do we have? Mm. Would you agree? I don't know. A little bit hopeless. I think sometimes for most of us, it feels very, very hopeless. It feels like we have, we're disempowered because we feel like none of the things that we do matter or have influence, right? Mm -hmm. So, I think that's what the terrifying part is, that you have representative democracies where the people that go through the notions of voting don't even feel represented. Right. They don't in, if you feel like the politics that's being led, um, they can't identify with it, right? Uh, around the world, you're seeing more and more. Um, what we have to acknowledge is we're, we're living currently in a world where we decided to take rights away from humans and give those rights to companies, mm-hmm. take rules off companies and put rules on human beings. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that people have rights, companies have rules. It should not be the other way around. Mm-hmm. And yet you're seeing this happen uh, all around the world. And and what you end up uh, with are uh, primarily what I guess you would call right-winged uh, governments, right-winged 
politicians that are there advocating not for the rights of their voters, but advocating for the rights of companies. You know, and- but I think what I like to do is um, I get a little concerned with the idea of left and right. And the I think the, the concern I have with that is that traditionally there were um, left was more liberal on social issues and also on economic type of issues. And right was more conservative on both fronts. But I know in the U.S. over the last 16 years, we've actually seen that the a representative party for, quote, the left, which is seen as the Democratic Party, has really split itself into being socially liberal on a lot of issues, while economically they are moving further and further towards supporting the wealth class and the needs of the wealth class, which we could call conservative economics. So I'm starting to and, – and some people who are pretty far on the right, like libertarians or um, other groups, would say that that the hallmark of their goals actually are the liberties and the rights of individuals. So I, I have, I'm trying to reframe the conversation a little bit to recognizing the difference between economic policies and social policies, parse it out a bit more. What do you think about that? I think it's antiquated. I think the way in which we looked at politics from a left to right uh, sliding scale point of view made sense. It made sense maybe 100 years ago, 70, 80 years ago when we were fighting for workers' rights. Mm-hmm. When we were fighting for the rights of the people to have more equality. When we were fighting for our fundamental rights. But March, we have our fundamental rights now. What we need to fight for now are things that ultimately affect all of us. We're, I mean, what is the left and right of environmental policies? What is the left and, and, and right of global warming? What is the left or right of privacy, you know, right. or understanding how the internet works and what, how we get our rights on, the, on this platform that we're constantly on? And why we don't have those rights uh, on that platform right now. You know, there is no left or right in that. The challenges we, um, we're facing now are not left and right challenges. Mm-hmm. They're humanity-based challenges. Yeah. And the complexity of them requires all hands on deck. And it requires everyone to be able to, within um, you know, a form of sanity to voice their opinion, be heard, and for us to then democratically get to a decision on how we're going to deal with those things. But left and right doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. We're beyond now. You know, it's interesting when it comes to um, one of these other areas that we're going to move into, which had to do with um, the certificate of equal pay idea that's been floating around during the last election in Iceland and um uh, basically equal pay between men and women. Fascinatingly enough, my husband walks upstairs about four days ago and hands me um, the business section of the Seattle Times. And on the front cover is a big article about Iceland um, demanding that its companies actually prove that they're providing equal pay to men and women. And mm-hmm. I'm in the Seattle area, right? You know, and it's being talked about down here. So one of the things that I think um, when we talk about the importance of economics as a mathematical piece, 
and a purely economic piece, but also as a social construct or a way of evaluating our success as a society. Um, I tend to refer back to the antebellum South uh, when slavery was still legal in the United States of America. And you have this, this mythological viewpoint that people in the North thought slavery was bad. But at the same time, the people in the North were demanding low prices for products that were being produced in the South by slave labor. And so you could sit there and point your finger at slavery's bad. Meanwhile, you're whining about the cost of cotton or whatever other product it is, and you want the price to go lower. Well, you're getting that cheap product because of slavery. Today, right, right now, it's identical. The coffee, the sugar, the chocolate, um, the textiles, fresh fruit. You know, there's all these things that you get to go to the store and buy and enjoy and literally, especially the chocolate's been talked about a lot right now, there are mm-hmm. children who are enslaved in Africa and other places who are producing that chocolate for you. How does that make you any different? You might not be the slave owner in an African you know, farm who's beating up kids and forcing them to go pick the cacao, but you're the person going to the store and buying the chocolate every day. Right. We need to look at the blending of if we have a social ideal, we have to then make sure our economic choices are backing up that social ideal and that they are cooperating together. I don't think we can well, divorce them. No, I um, I agree with that. But we have to also be careful not to completely numb and shock ourselves to no, not being able to do anything mm-hmm. because we are petrified of breaking rights. Uh, of workers, of children, of minorities, by purchasing simple goods. What we need to do instead is to talk to our governments about their participation in buying multilateral organizations or bodies around the world where they sit down and have very long meetings about trade and commerce mm-hmm. and tell them, hey, you know what? As a country, we no longer accept goods from this category unless they are labeled in this way, unless there is a guarantee that you as a producing company will adhere to X, Y, Z. It doesn't have to be rocket science. I mean, again, I find that just like we're doing with, you know, internet safety, just like we're doing with a bunch of other really huge topics, we're pushing the entirety of the responsibility down to the citizen. It would be the of you going and purchasing a car and then the car salesman says oh by the way um, you put in some seat belts and some airbags but that's on you so you know enjoy enjoy your car uh, have a great year you know you would never accept that there are safety regulations now you guys worked hard for that in, in a complex world right as you just mentioned the world that we live in it's becoming more and more globalized. We're right. more and more dependent, luckily, on each other and other cultures. We have access to so much more now, which can influence us. But we're so afraid to put on any regulations. We're so afraid to look at each other and say, well, I have some expectations to you, um, to this product, to the way in which we, we do business. I think that is such a really great point because – 
once again, I'm going to remind my listeners, Iceland has 325,000 individuals in the entire country compared to our 350 million. You guys are literally half the size of Seattle. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And I always think to myself, if my country was half the size of Seattle, it would be so much more intimate and so much more easy to sort of discuss a lot of these things. But there's a big push of, um, you know, free trade, no regulations, and how dare you suggest that we limit anybody's ability to trade. But like you just pointed out, when you look at the auto industry, we have all of these regulations, and yet we don't even really, we take it so much for granted. We don't quite realize anybody from some other country who wants to sell us a car with no seatbelts and airbags, they can't sell it here in the U.S. You can't get away with that now. And not only that, I believe, and I may be wrong, but I do believe that it was Mr. Ralph Nader that made that happen for you guys. I wouldn't be surprised. He's an amazing guy. <laughs> so it was more than just that. It was someone who you know, at an advantageous time, took advantage of the time and the place and the space that he was in to say, nope, you know, we need, and we would never dream of getting into a car uh, that didn't have basic safety regulations, right? Mm -hmm. Let alone let someone sell that to us. Um, Yet at the same time, we, you know, we are letting commerce come in and we are trading um, where it's not just breaking on workers' rights, it's 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 much it's much more than that, you know. The poor constantly shaming the poor through legislation, through a bunch of other things. Well, you and I were talking earlier about the ways in which people judge something. For example, if you were to judge a person's success in their life purely upon the size of their bank account, you could have people who are totally depressed, miserable, married and divorced eight times, their kids hate them, but supposedly their life was successful because they got a bunch of money. And we all know that there are more markers out there than just your money to judge whether your life was successful. What you just brought up is that we have regulations related to the safety of a product that can be sold in the United States. That's one way of of judging a product. It's safety to the consumer. But what if another way of judging the value or the safety of a product was, were the people who built this product treated humanely? And did the production of this product contribute to the damage or devastation of the environment, which will affect all of us? So, there's the safety element. People get that. It's pretty selfish. You know, I want my baby to survive if I'm in a car accident. Okay, great. But it's a little bit more selfless to care about the workers in another country having a quality of life. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that we are becoming more and more aware uh, at mass scale of the consequences of purchasing certain items, right? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, (laughs) that's also a very privileged conversation. It is a super privileged conversation to say, I refuse to be a part of a problem of child labor on the other side of the planet, right? So we need to also just talk about what are we doing as a society to make sure that everyone literally has access to opportunities and possibilities within their community, within, you know, their state, right? And yeah. so I, from a political point of view, I wouldn't say that if we go back to this antiquated scale of left and right, I wouldn't say 
either I'm all of those things or none of those things, right? Um, I think the two most important things, the stability, the security that you need in a country or in your community to be able to thrive is twofold. It's healthcare and it's education. Everything after that, you're going to be okay. Does that make sense? If you have yeah. access to free education, if you have access to free healthcare, all the rest of it, we can figure out in different ways. Right. I'm not fuzzed about that. I am fuzzed about education and I am. Um, Absolutely. And that comes from a person that's been working with freedom of expression and internet security for a decade. And those are not even, I mean, those are extremely important things to me. But when it comes to building a society, I think education and healthcare is that security and stability you need to to thrive, you know? Yeah, you know, the the education piece is so scary in that um, there's a couple of movies, documentaries that are out there in most of the large industrialized cities in the United States of America. Um, you know, the big names that come to mind, you know, Chicago, Atlanta, things like that. In many cases, the graduation level, we're talking high school graduation for American kids, is on average only around 50%. So you've got about 50% of generations now, at least 20, 30 years this has been going on, of people who didn't even make it out of high school. Then what small percentage of people are actually able to go to college, you know, and the ones that do are burdened by debt. And then if everyone's scared, of getting sick or they don't have sick leaves, so they're going to work when they're sick and blah, blah, blah. These two things have a crushing, a soul crushing impact on the people of America. And it is, it is so staggeringly surprising to me that we do not claim our birthright. The, the disparity between the idea that America is the greatest country in the world and then the low caliber of quality of life that we're willing to accept, which is underinvestment in our ability to, to know what's going on in the world and our ability to be taken care of when we're ill, is really um, – I, I can't – otherwise, I'm just – it's boggling. It boggles the mind. No, it's just control. I mean, if you set up a system where for you to be educated, for you to kind of wake from a state of of of, of dwelling, right – for you to be able to have critical thinking skills, for you to take part, to question, to be an active part of society, education is a big part of that, right? Yeah. Yep. You to have access to that, you have to be indebted. Indebted is nothing but control because when you have debt, you have to pay it off. When you have to pay it off, you no longer have the freedom to pursue whatever it is that you want to. You have to get a job regardless. Mm-hmm. You can't lose that job. So all of a sudden... You're in this massive dependency, um, and it's it controls your behavior. Obviously, yeah. I think it's. I mean, I I, th- I think there are ways, and and I know it's going to sound radical to American ears or to to U.S. ears, but looking at things like basic in- universal income, looking at the ways in which that has uh, been tried. Uh, both in the UK over 100 years ago to try to tackle poverty, but also in Switzerland and in Finland. Um, and for those of you who who maybe are not familiar with the term, um, basic income is basically creating a society where you get money from the state, regardless of who you are. Mm-hmm. So there's a basic amount that everyone gets, 
for being citizens, for mm-hmm. being, you know, in, in that community. Um, and what that can do is it could help us with a lot of the challenges that um, that we're looking at. You know, everything from having the time and space to create truly innovative projects to um, when your family member becomes ill to, you know, all of those challenges that that we still don't have good um, ways to tackle, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Things happen in life. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, the rate of your success is more than the number of dollars in your bank account. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we have to look broader of what makes us happy, what makes us tick, what part of, you know, how are we contributing to and enjoying the culture that we co-create together? It, money is extremely valuable as a as a um, a lubricant for commerce and trade, and that's wonderful. But mm-hmm. um, I just feel like a lot of times people will say, "I'm really good at this," but there's no point in being good at this unless I can make a job out of it. Well, that's because I mean, the radical idea of the basic income is, you know, and and the Pirate Party here in Iceland has asked for that. To to be researched, you know, what would the, what would basic universal basic income look like in Iceland? You know, what you know, what options would we have of adopting that? So just looking into researching that as a possibility. But what it does give us is something that we don't have, something that we're dependent on companies and our government to give us, and that's safety. Guarantee safety. you're not going to be homeless and on the street. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the importance of so removing removing that you know to removing the connection between you know fundamental safety and uh, earning dollars right. Mm-hmm. I think that disconnecting that is where we will um, end up going in the future. It's a natural next step, or it, one of the next steps that we're going to do. I'm not saying it's necessarily going to be the next one, but one of the next steps that I definitely see us doing, not just in Iceland, um, but around the world, is mm-hmm. is is looking at exactly this, because we have believed this immense lie for some reason. Companies have told us now, and with certain governments as well, uh, for decades that we have to be effective. The effective human being, the effective society. We have to have massive growth. A part of growth is being effective as a worker bee, effective as a parent, effective as a human being in an effective society. Mm-hmm. And it's a big lie. Effective human beings are not happy human beings. They're not gonna, you know, we're, we, we, we somehow believe the lie of the effective human being in an effective society. Mm-hmm. And yet that's exactly the opposite of where we need, you know, our ancestors and our great grandparents didn't fight for workers. Someone fought every day, marched, was beaten for us to have basic civil liberties, for us to have basic workers' rights, right. for us to only, for instance, in Iceland, work 40-hour weeks. Right. Someone fought for that. And what are we doing with that? With the privilege that we now have to have good um, unions or to have good legal frameworks so companies cannot exploit us, right? right? What are we doing with that? 
We're buying into the notion that we have to be robotic and automated and we have to work faster and harder. Right. It makes no sense. <laughs> it is fascinating. The, um, the, I think a lot of times that's, uh, keeping up with the Joneses concept was, you know, want, you know, the neighbors get a nicer car, you want a nicer car, the, the neighbor's wife gets a, a fancy washer and dryer. Now you want a washer and dryer. So over the last 60 years in the U.S., the idea of keeping up with the Joneses was part of this material, um, increase and what people wanted, consumerism and all that. And, you know, I, I always find it fascinating when I just step back and I'm like, okay, if, if we all were to look at the resources available to us right now and chose to cooperatively develop a sustainable system that fairly um, shared those resources, the, the, the wealth of the of the continent that the United States of America enjoys could provide everyone with like 10 to 15 hours a week work time and the rest of the week basically enjoying your life if we weren't all trying to have a McMansion and three cars and, you know, um, new clothing every three months. You know, we are oddly enough driving ourselves into stressful situations that aren't necessary. And yet, of course, how on earth do you possibly shift that? And where do you come? What angle do you come at it from? Yeah. yeah and but you know what? If you want a McMansion, you should go get one. If you want to work hard and get that McMansion, you know, in a nice spot outside of town where there are five other McMansions, just like that one, and that's how you want to start a community up, you know, you have the freedom to do that. It's true. Taking a second to reflect and critically think about why you want that and who put that idea in your head if they did, um, it's not going to hurt, you know. I mean, yeah. all people doing exactly what they want to, you know, whatever tickles your fancy, please. And I do believe that uh, legal frameworks need to be effective, right? We need to have effective laws that can't be manipulated, that, you know, that, that can't be used for anything other than their intended purpose. So there is effectiveness that is great in our processes, in our legal framework, mm-hmm. but humans should never be effective. It makes, I mean, to me, it just makes no sense. But we were told this lie and we bought it. What do you think humans need to be to be um, successful at living on planet Earth and happy in the process? Man, I think we need to listen. (laughs) We stopped listening decades ago. Um, When we've struggled for every right that we've had and now, you know, even though it doesn't feel that that way, I think um, the late um, the late Professor Hans Rosling, if he taught us anything, it's we're we're as as a planet, we are in much better state than we were 50 years ago. More more girls are going to school. Less of us are dying from you know diseases that are curable. All all of that. I think the maybe going back to the beginning of our conversation, mm-hmm. I think a success what what does a successful human being look like? Well, I don't know. They get to define that themselves, but I do believe that a, a free exchange of culture, of you being able to pursue whatever it is that makes you happy uh without hurting anyone, 
mm-hmm. that to me is is definitely a measure of success. If you have access to the opportunities and the chances that your society and your and, and you know and your country gives you, you if you have access to those possibilities, you have the option of of being the type of success that you want to be. I think fundamentally at the core of that lays culture. And that's what definitely makes me tick. I think free expression is exactly important because of culture. Because it is only with the free expression that we will allow our culture to thrive. There is um, a lot of talk right now in Iceland about, from what I understand from what I've been reading, the um, the ongoing ethic and belief that men and women should receive equal pay for equal work and um, apparently from this article in particular, a recognition that if you just have the idea and you don't have enforcement behind it, that you'll end up not actually getting to the goal. And so what's what's going on in Iceland right now, given that you're already, I believe, fairly matriarchal in some ways and have a lot of empowerment of women compared to other places in the world, sort of where are you guys at now? No, and it's a good question. I think, yes, it is. Uh, many families uh, are, are definitely run as, as matriarchal. Uh, it does, however, not... I mean, and this is coming from, again, a, a place of huge privilege. Iceland is the most gender-equal country in the world, according to you know the methodologies or indexes that exist right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there is literally no better place when it comes to equality to be a female. Hmm. That said, it doesn't mean that we're there. Um, there is still inequality, sexism, um, misogyny that happens every day. You know, we, we, we haven't tackled the culture of that. Um, one of the current members of parliament uh, spent a, a big chunk of their time uh, campaigning for this certificate of equal pay. So that in itself is great, right? Ashton Kutchner was sharing something on Facebook about it. Everyone's happy. Yet many Icelanders um, aren't that vocal about it. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is thinking that money or equal pay is the only thing we need to fix to fix a culture of sexism or fix the culture of the fact that women are not treated equal to men still is going to do us a disservice. Putting the emphasis on the money is not going to change the culture. We need to talk to our kids about this. Mm -hmm. We need to start looking critically at ourselves um, and uh, our families and our interactions. So when we do ask women to smile more, when we, you know, do get annoyed at women uh, when they speak up because her voice just really annoys me. You're, you know, that type of thing isn't just, oh, I happen to have that opinion of that woman's voice. That is deeply ingrained in us. Every single way in which an adult interacts with a child is a part of forming that tiny little human's ability to be able to be socialized for the future, right? Mm-hmm. I would rather want us as a country to go in and say, you know what? If you work in a kindergarten, if you are a teacher, if you work in a traditionally female environment, a female working environment, sorry, performing a female or, you know, gender job, right? pay raise 35% across the board. That's it. 
Because the thing is... Right, right, right. They were talking about this in the article. They were noticing that a lot of times uh, the, the problem with the equal pay concept is that if mostly women end up getting into the position of secretary and mostly men end up getting into the position of manager, then the few women who become managers, you could pay them equally to the men who are managers, but you still now have more women in the lower pay tier as the secretary. So if you're if you're just equalizing pay, you're not acknowledging even or addressing the fact that maybe when the decision was made of who to promote, for some reason the man got the promotion and not the woman. No, exactly. And 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 another thing is that we haven't really seen a really good way in which uh, this political party wants to enact uh, this law, this mm-hmm. bill of 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 um, you know ensuring these certificates. Now, right. don't get me wrong. I believe that we deserve a meritocracy, but if we are not um, blatantly aware of the fact that we do not live in a meritocracy, if we are not blatantly aware that genitalia decides how much pay you get, that women do not get chances, that women are sexually assaulted um, or sexually harassed at work, getting lesser pay, and Mm -hmm. they don't have access right? They don't have access to a variety of different jobs and professions. Right. If we're not acutely aware of that now, we're never going to get to the meritocracy. The the, the concern with the um, focus on a certificate of equal pay is that it's a bit of a band-aid and it misses a lot of the pieces of the problem. But it'll mm-hmm. make it look like, oh, look, we have the certificate, we've solved our problems, but it's ignoring the other nine problems that weren't even dealt with. Yeah, it's an imaginary quick fix. Let's be real. (laughs) It takes a lot more than just that. And I'm not saying that women don't deserve equal pay. I am. I just have concerns in which how this is going to be implemented. How are they suggesting to implement this? Uh, And I do believe that it's very unnuanced. We need to be, yeah, definitely be looking a lot broader than just this. Not to speak of uh, people of color or, you know... um, asylum seekers or people that have disabilities or or all these other things, you know? Thank you so (laughs) much for giving me um, an hour and a half of your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It, it, it really is um, amazing. And, and this is how it all starts. It starts with conversations between humans. Yeah, that's how change starts. That's how revolutions are built. Absolutely. All right. For those of you who are, have just tuned in recently, you've been listening to Focus On. My name's March Twisdale. This is my new show here on Voice of Vashon, where my guests share how they hope to see the world change for the better, one shared idea at a time. And if you've just caught up with the show and you've missed part of it or some of the previous shows, go to marchtwisdale.com and you can find all of them right there.